The Inventive Podcast, mixing engineering fact and fiction. Inventive. 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 With Trevor Cox, Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford. Welcome to Inventive. Today it's our first ever double header of engineers. Ines Abu Hamid and Manjot Chana might have very different backstories, but they're working together to bring hydrogen power to developing countries. They're trying to solve the problems of intermittent electricity. Hydrogen is the past, the present, and the future. The data itself will tell a story if you let it. A lot of the time, the data that's needed to work out the true objective story isn't there. Just get the data and allow the data read off the page the story that it wants to tell. Now, many people think that green hydrogen is vital for tackling the climate emergency. Is that true? In the end, it's the data that will answer that question. And as this is inventive, we'll be mixing this fact with fiction. This time, a tale by George Sandifer Smith featuring green energy Luddites. What did your research tell you, Mr. Franklin? asks Nav. I hope nothing to do with some deep level organisation tracking your every movement. Franklin puffs air out of his cheeks. He's either feeling caught out or he's just exasperated. My name is Inas Abu Hamid and I am the CEO of an engineering company called H2Go Power working on developing and deploying hydrogen technologies. So you call yourself not only an entrepreneur but an activist. Why is that? The reason is that although we work on the solution, I found that it's very important as well to talk about the problem and to bring the problems that we work on, like climate change, for example, to the attention of a lot of people. So that's where the activism comes in. It's around bringing the problem uh, awareness to uh, many people whilst we work on the solution in our labs and offices. Is, is that because you need to make people aware of the problem because you're maybe raising funds? for your company to to enable you to solve the problem or is it because you fundamentally feel this is a problem we all ought to know about and we should be trying to answer? Well really it is climate change. Let's talk about this in particular. It's a very interconnected problem that is interconnected to many other problems like air pollutions, food waste and, and, and things like that. But just focusing on climate change, it's everyone's problem. So everyone should know about it. And I mean, what led you to work on clean energy technologies then? So uh, really starting from the solution, I was working in a research around storing hydrogen and I had an invention in the lab and uh, I wasn't sure what was it good for and the journey was really about realizing what it could be good for, what problem could it solve, what purpose could it serve and one thing really led to another but really it started from a technical solution without knowing the problem very well. Because I guess being in the West, I mean, I can just go and flick a switch and on comes energy and, and things are easy, I guess. We, all this kind of technology that enables us to be able to have energy anytime we want. But that's not true in, in places like Africa, is it? No, it's not. And the way the company started, after I had the invention, I travelled to Africa to, to give a talk. 
And until that time, I really didn't know that 1.2 billion people around the world didn't have control over the switch. And that trip was an eye-opener in terms of actually seeing it firsthand and realizing that, you know, maybe giving talks about a solution isn't the way forward. Um, there must be another way to do this. Uh, Africa, for example, have 600 million people who don't have regular access to power. It shouldn't be a problem that we have today with all the technologies and with all the capabilities and with all the resources that we have around the world. Uh, so there is some injustice to that, which bothers me personally. And I think that if I have an ability to contribute to the solution, I should. I think it should bother us all, really, shouldn't it? Because, um, yeah. you know, we're used to energy as just being something that's there. But, but you know, in Africa, it, it, it's a luxury for some, isn't it? It's a luxury. It's not something that you, you imagine, like, for example, hospitals would run out of and they would need to cut their operations or stop doing life-saving operations because they don't have power, because they just got blackout at the moment where patients are waiting to be operated on. And, and you know, an intriguing quote I've, I've heard from you is that, you know, there must be a solution for every problem. That's, that's quite an optimistic outlook on life, isn't it? Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, I find fascinating about engineering. If you look around, the greatest inventions of our lifetime are engineering inventions. And they all come to solve a problem. And that on its own is very encouraging. It's a very positive sign that actually, if we were able to invent all of that, there must be an invention to any problem. I mean, it is a very much a very optimistic kind of outlook. So, so why did you honing on hydrogen power as being a potential to solve this problem of energy and also deal with climate change? Uh, multiple reasons. So what's unique about hydrogen? Well, first, it's a smallest molecule in the world. It doesn't have any carbon. So when you burn it or convert it electrochemically, you're not really generating emissions. If you started from a green hydrogen, for example, if you split water to generate hydrogen and oxygen, at the point of use, you don't have carbon footprint. It's a very elegant molecule with a very elegant solution that does not emit pollutants. And that could solve many, many of our problems if you think about how much carbon we produce in heavy industries. Combine that with how much carbon we emit in aviation and combine that with how much carbon we emit to supply our energy demand for development and growth. Uh, if you combine all that, you see like at the end, our problem is carbon, is the emissions that we are generating. And this has been associated so far with productivity and development. And hydrogen is offering a real alternative. It's an energy-dense solution that could supply demand in a very clean way. Is hydrogen the future? Hydrogen is the past, the present, and the future. It was there at the very beginning, and it's a very central player. And uh, I bet it will be there in the future. And... I guess we, we see quite a lot of discussions about energy solutions like renewable energy, but we don't hear so much about hydrogen being used very soon. What, what's holding it back? The prices of renewable energy have started to go down recently in a very compelling way. And that is a very, very good starting point. 
and the prices of hydrogen at the moment they are higher than alternatives so we're not really doing the math right thinking whether we should be using a greener alternative today because it will pay off tomorrow we're just opting for the cheapest solution without thinking about the cost of carbon to our planet and that what has prevented i think hydrogen so far from growing up to its real potential having said that that is changing because uh, hydrogen technologies are being scaled now to reach economy of scale and they will reach competitive prices with alternatives like natural gas in the next 10 years or so and so describe to me the, the system you're developing which is kind of uh, going to be used as sort of kind of like almost like um like a hydrogen battery on tap demand sort of energy when it's needed during high demand what we specialize in really is storing the hydrogen safely without high pressures and the idea is that if you are taking excess renewable energy solar power or wind power that is not being utilized at the point of generation because the grid is overloaded or there isn't demand for it we're proposing that the best way to do that is at that point to store that energy as hydrogen to pump that energy into an electrolyzer combined with water that will give you green hydrogen store that green hydrogen in a very safe process which is our process whereby you don't have to worry about compression or leakage if you're storing for long durations and only when the demand peaks and there isn't enough supply you could really control when to release that hydrogen back into the user in a clean form zero emission in the whole process and at the same time in a very controlled manner that will meet the peak demand and of course there's lots of companies looking at hydrogen energy what makes h2go your company special Uh, What makes us special is that we don't compress gas, which is the conventional alternative. We use a chemical reaction that allows converting the gas molecule into either solid state or liquid state, a hydrogen trapped in a chemical compound at a liquid state or at a solid state. And uh, you convert it back to gas at the point of use. So that's what makes H2Go power unique. The technologies that we have developed around the process that enable efficient, low cost and very safe hydrogen storage that is not in a form of compressed gas. And and looking about how, you know, your life and how you got here, you're originally from Palestine. And and unfortunately, when when I hear Palestine, of course, that to me from someone in Britain conjures up images of the conflicts that you see in the news. But your childhood wasn't like that, was it? No, I grew up in a city called Akko. That city uh, is very peaceful. Uh, I had a very great experience with education, exposure to engineering. I personally did not have an unpeaceful experience growing up. So you had this uh, childhood which was relatively, uh, as you said, uh, um, good for education. I mean, it's... Was was there one thing that inspired you to move towards, in the end, running an engineering company? Um, so growing up, my, my dad is an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and I was always very close to my dad. A lot of the conversations or the games that I'd play with my dad were about like how to build a bridge or how to put things together. 
the thinking process that comes before that, and then the action, and then the plan. So that was always something that intrigued me, the thinking process, and then the action that comes after that, which, which engineering really revolves around. And that really did impact the way I think and the way I like to pick a challenge and, and get involved in. It's a very enjoyable process and I don't see myself doing anything else. Yeah, it's really interesting because my, my parents were both scientists and I didn't realise quite how much they'd indoctrinated me until I saw them with my children. So they're playing with their grandchildren and I could see they were always questioning why and always sort of kind of making them think in a scientific way about things. I mean, were you aware that your father was, um, you know, kind of... Uh, training you to be an engineer at the time? No, at least like I realized that only by uh, looking uh, backwards. I never thought about it growing up. And then you made a big move to come to Cambridge. I mean, uh, you know, moving across, across the world to, to study at Cambridge. What, what was it like coming to UK for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted to do a PhD. So I thought maybe like do a PhD somewhere where I can learn my English as well. I was fascinated by the history of Cambridge. So uh, I applied to Cambridge, I got in and uh, I had a, an incredible time. I remember the first week walking around and thinking about Isaac Newton lived here. Uh, I once bumped into uh, Stephen Hawking's in the streets. I, I found that fascinating, like like no other place. Yeah. I mean, thinking about where you are now and, and you know, you now work with an engineering company. I mean, if you could wave a magic wand and change something about engineering, what, what, what would it be? Um, just one thing. <laughs> oh, well, list as many as you want. I do think that we have really big challenges facing humanities and climate change is one of them. I am very happy that we now got to a stage where there is quite a lot of awareness on how damaging climate change could be to our lives and our planet. And if there would be one thing I could change, I would use more engineering to accelerate progress towards tackling climate change. We're working at slower pace than what we should be. That would be, I think, the most pressing things. There'd be a few other things as well, but you asked me for one. <laughs> and also, I mean, there's an interesting battle here between what companies do and what governments do, aren't there? Um, so yeah. do you think that press has to come from the government or do you think it's up to us as, as citizens and our companies to do this work? Both together. You can't expect either to work in isolation. They will have to work together. Otherwise, they'll be working against each other. Uh, if companies only would make progress without engaging government, without having the right policies in place to accelerate their progress, uh, it will be blocking them. They wouldn't get where they need to be. And vice versa, if the government would ignore all the innovations and the great things that are coming from companies instead of embracing that and facilitating easier transition into reaching as far as they can, then I don't think that the government would be really functioning the way it should be. And if I had a magic wand and somehow down this, uh, this kind of uh, internet recording we're doing, I, had a, I could give you a superpower, what would it be and why? Funding. When you're developing technologies, especially engineering technologies, they burn a lot of funding that is not the type of funding that you would find easily out there. 
either from government or from private investments. And I think to accelerate development pace and to create great engineering solutions, you really need to back that up with a sufficient level of funding. Many entrepreneurs developing great ideas out there, they would do a lot better if more funding was available easier. So maybe maybe the superpower is to be able to convince anyone to give you the money you need. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure. So a big thank you to entrepreneur and activist Ines Abu-Hamad. Thank you so much for having me today. And it, now it gives me a great pleasure to introduce one of my very talented colleagues, Manjot Chana. He's, he's connecting just now. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to Manjot. Okay, great. Inventive. My name is Manjot Chana. Here at H2Go Power, I'm a senior systems integration engineer. I've been working for eight years, and all of those eight years I've spent as an integration engineer in different businesses. So I've spent time in Jaguar Land Rover. That was the bulk of my career. I then worked at Arrival, the unicorn automotive startup, for a short period. And that was before joining H2Go Power. So yeah, I've been doing integration for a very long time. I don't, I don't think I know what that is. What, what does an integration engineer do? So in principle, we make stuff work together. We take the lovely work of engineers who work on subsystems and we sew them together into a full and complete system. So the interfaces that exist between different subsystems to get them working together, that's where I come in. I make sure that the interface is correct between two systems and the subsystems are communicating correctly between each other. Data is flowing correctly between systems. The wiring is correct between systems. The software has been coded correctly between systems. So as an integration engineer, we have to know a hell of a lot about everything but only a shallow amount. So it's a very wide but shallow field in, in terms of knowledge developments. And, and when you say you're, you're tying together two different systems, could you give us an example that maybe people who aren't engineers would kind of recognise as a couple of systems you might tie together? Yes, yeah, certainly. So something as simple as making sure that the signals for the brake pedal, when sent through the different controllers in a vehicle, for instance, you want to make sure that the signal route is correct end-to-end end, and the desired function is actually what's created by the desired input. You want to be absolutely certain that when you press your brake pedal, that your windshield wiper doesn't start actuating. And um, why, did, why did you end up becoming an engineer? Why, why do you think you, what led you to this career? Going right back to my early memories, I remember I was a huge fan of Power Rangers and every single year they would release a new series. And the most exciting part for me was always how those robots would combine. I would just love seeing how they would come together to form something. Another huge robot comprised of five smaller robots. And I remember feeling that satisfaction when the robots came together after I'd learned how the two would join at one point and another two would join at another point. And that definitely had some sort of developmental effect on me in terms of wanting to get into basically integration. So, I mean, you were hankering after becoming the integration engineer for the Power Rangers, essentially. <laughs> I genuinely used to uh, dream about how I could build my own robots like they had in Power Rangers and how they would combine together. I used to love playing with Lego. I would come home and just spend hours assembling just random creations, which I thought of. And a lot of the time, what I would be assembling every single day was a new set of the small robots. They're called Zords, by the way. So a, a small set of five Zords, but I would assemble them such that those five then could join to be a bigger single robot. And that was kind of my way of channeling that desire. So yeah, I was kind of after that. 
And you were chatting just before we came on and you were saying you'd just been doing soldering. So you're still doing, you know, you've been in the business eight years, but you're still getting hands-on with the the technology. Absolutely, yeah. So here at my current role, I'm the the senior systems integration engineer and it's actually a team of one. So here in my role, I'm, I'm looking after all of the electrical engineering, software engineering, networks engineering. And that means the design of each of the systems, the implementation, hence the soldering, and then the validation. Um, so a lot of my days are spent writing code, quite a hands-on activity or soldering or assembling the system which we're designing for our hydrogen power-to-power units. So yeah, very uh, hands-on. And I, and I guess then you get to see things come to life then in a way that some engineers are a bit sort of uh, detached from it. That is my favourite bit. I mean, seeing the, the scribble on the back of a, uh, a napkin become a full-fledged design and not only just become a design, but I also get to, with my own hands, assemble that design into a fully working, capable system. That is the most exciting bit for me. I was just saying to my boss yesterday, sometimes I look at the system that I've created in the lab and I actually can't believe what I put together. I, I'm impressed with myself because I didn't think that I was capable of doing this, you know, but bit by bit every day you see it come to life and you kind of don't appreciate the magnitude because you just see it change incrementally every day. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's really a contrast to, say, the engineering I do where I'm designing on a computer or something and someone else goes off and makes it. And yeah, it's nice to point at something and go, oh, I made that piece, in my case, a critical treatment. But you actually get to get your hands dirty, if I could put it that way, uh, actually making yeah, stuff. Yeah, I started off as an apprentice eight years ago at Jaguar Land Rover. And I remember when I joined that apprenticeship, I used to tell everyone, uh, not, not bragging, but I, I used to kind of use it as a shield. I would say, I'm not very good with my hands, but I'm great with my head. So allow me to just do like the design work and that kind of thing. And in my first year as an apprentice, I was subjected to a mandatory engineering, machining, milling, lathing module. And I remember hating every single second of it. But after those six years of my apprenticeship, when it was completed, I am so thankful that I was subjected to um, that module because it changed my life. I no longer ever will say I'm not good with my hands. I am so willing now to just get in there, get my hands dirty and learn the system and and see it come to life, you know. So you didn't have a childhood of, you know, classic doing lots of engineering as a child that led you into JLR. I mean, what led you to apply to Jaguar Land Rover for the apprenticeship? Actually, it was, it was less to do with the pursuit of knowledge. So I, I grew up in not necessarily a well-off family. And when it got to the point of applying for universities and apprenticeships and that kind of thing, I actually applied to Aston University. I had the place to do a degree in electronic engineering and computer science. But I remember my teacher at the time and my mother had kind of mentioned, oh, there's a new apprenticeship. It's called a degree apprenticeship. So it was a fairly uncommon thing at the time. And they said, for that, you get paid and you get your degree. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. I know that the family, uh, they could do with more money. And, you know, I obviously want to be earning as soon as possible. So I looked into it and, and I applied. I was thinking more about, I need to start earning ASAP, try and help out the family, as opposed to, I really want purely the knowledge and the experience. Would it be fair to say that, in a sense, you fell into engineering? Uh, accident isn't probably quite the word, but no, it wasn't a plan of attack. You know, I want to become an engineer. It was more, this is an opportunity for me to earn money that drove you this way. I knew that I wanted to be an engineer. I've always loved solving problems. I've always been super, super curious. And even uh, speaking to some of my primary school teachers, they'll remind me that I would just used to ask why about everything and I wouldn't let them off the hook. So I think it was a natural predisposition for me to go into an engineering apprenticeship. I've always loved 
closing loops, not just necessarily in engineering, but in life. If something needs doing, get it done. If there's something on my list, make sure it gets done. In terms of engineering, I've always had a massive affinity for solving problems. Life itself is just a series of micro problems which need to be solved or optimised. And when you were growing up, you you don't come from a, uh, a well-off background, do you at all? We were never made to feel like we were poor. Um, it wasn't really spoken about. And if it ever was, it was kind of brushed over. But I always knew that there was problems under the surface and the family kind of could do with some help. And my father passed away quite unexpectedly in 2014. But when people pass away, they have life insurance and they leave behind sums of money which may be able to help the family. And unfortunately, when my dad passed away, what was left behind was debt. You know, me being in work in an apprenticeship at that point, that was such a huge help for the family earning a wage at kind of a young age you know 18 19 20 uh, a decent wage at that wage which i was proud of it was you know a huge help when things kind of uh, hit the fan and, and and so you started off your engineering with an, a degree apprenticeship at jaguar land rover but you've now moved on to clean energy technologies in in h2go um that sounds like quite a change yes yes so um i didn't necessarily have a huge affinity to cars that was actually my brother Myself, I just, I loved technology and a lot of the technology which can be used in cars can also be used in other fields, such as in power generation, which is uh, what I'm working on now. So it may seem like a huge jump, but the good thing about technology is it can be agnostic. So a microcontroller, which is used to sense the temperature on a car, it may be the temperature of your tire. And then uh, based on that temperature reading, you are going to send a signal to alert the driver if it's too high or too low or something like that. That same technology, those same signal paths, those same sensors and the communication protocols, they can all be used as is in every other field imaginable. And that includes here at H2Go Power in the energy industry. So a lot of the knowledge, technology and skills they're transferable. Technology is agnostic like that, which is wonderful. But you've also, in a sense, if I could, I don't know if ethics is the right word, but you've kind of ethically moved from an industry, I mean, especially in a company like Jaguar Land Rover at the time would have been very much all about diesel cars, to, you know, which is causing climate change, to a company that is now trying to deal with climate change. It was, was there motivation in terms of moving into something that many people would see creating a positive? Was, it, was that motivating your move? Oh, definitely, definitely. So... I was married and I used to speak with my ex-wife. We used to reflect back on how in her job, she helps people day in, day out. She was a haematologist at a hospital back in the West Midlands. And I used to think, you know what? I want a job where I can actually help people, where my work will directly impact someone's life. So that was one of my drivers when I made this move. And I'm glad that I did. I can see so vividly that the technology that we're working at here at H2Go Power will literally change lives it will reduce pollution it will reduce costs for businesses that allows them to uh, spend money better elsewhere you know on their employees or on their facilities etc so yeah definitely that was a, a huge driver for me so manager you you know a quote of yours is the data never lies what do you mean by that so i've spent you know a lot of years now in engineering so i've worked with massive teams in my career and i've worked with very small teams and there's always this underlying constant that I see in the teams that I work in. And that's sometimes it's myself and sometimes it's other engineers. There's always this temptation to make a story and fit that story to the data and then try to, not maliciously, 
try to convince the others around you that this is the story. But I think that's the wrong approach. The data itself will tell a story if you let it. A lot of the time, the data that's needed to work out the true objective story isn't there. So I always start with, what does the data say? If we don't have the data, get the data. The data will tell us the story. Do not backfit a story to data. Just get the data and allow the data read off the page the story that it wants to tell. So what's the data at H2Go telling you? Well, I can see that there's potential definitely to be able to use hydrogen to be able to solve the renewable energy um, issue. I can see so vividly, so clearly that we are onto something here and that excites me every single day. I just want to see this technology come to life and be deployed in the world where I know it will make a difference. And I can see the data doing that right now. I can see that we're on the right path. So I try to remember that not only kind of in engineering, but in life as well. If you live your days a certain way and certain things give you happiness, then you can draw that conclusion that there's a positive correlation between activity X. For me, that might be biking and happiness. So just try to look at what the data says. I can now conclude that biking makes me happy. So I'll try to squeeze more biking into my life. It can be applied in engineering and in life, I think. And uh, so if, if the data never lies, are you obsessed with data with your biking as well? <laughs> actually, I'm obsessed with data about life in general. Um, so I actually have what I've called a future dashboard where I, I track data on myself. I have been doing for more than a year now where, you know, I'll measure every day how happy um, I generally was. Did I drink enough water? Did I stick to my calories? Did I learn anything today? And I'll run like monthly reviews just by looking at the data for the past month. And then I'll run an annual review. You know, that's part of the reason why I had been able to work out last year that something needs to change. I'd found that I wasn't getting enough sleep because I was commuting two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, and then trying to live a life after work. It, it was just absolutely crazy, especially when I was an apprentice, when I was still studying at the same time. So I drew the conclusion during last year's annual review with my data you know, something needs to change and it's going to be my job. And so I guess if uh, if I was, if we could see each other face to face, because we're obviously down the line here, you know, you got wearable technologies on, are you? You're wearing stuff to monitor yourself? My phone and my watch. Sometimes it's just manual, remembering to write something at the end of the day as to how did you feel or, or that kind of thing. So yeah, my phone and my watch. You've been born in just the right era, haven't you, for all this technology suddenly coming available to, to engineer your life? Oh, yes. <laughs> So the Invented Podcast is about exploring engineering through both fact and fiction. How do you feel about having an author working on maybe your story or the story of how hydrogen is being used? I think that would be an incredible thing, yeah. That would be lovely. Nervous? No. I've got a saying, if, if it makes you uncomfortable, move towards it. I like to challenge my fears. So even if it did, I'd be uh, still on board. <laughs> Data is truth and Truth Data by George Sandifer Smith Five minutes from now, relative time NAV is making sure the directions on the navigation system line up with the road signs This is a fourth call out in two weeks shadowing Roscoe and his expression matches the bruise by his eye Nearing the end of her apprenticeship Nav is getting a handle on where the clean hydrogen system lines up with the difficult bit of green energy, the people. If you like, I can drive us back, says Nav. Roscoe winces. It's fine. It only hurts a bit when I look to the right. Nav knows Roscoe is brilliant. 
A year from now she'll graduate from her apprenticeship fully, and it'll be thanks to him. He's an old hand at this, a former engineer at a car factory, dating back to a time when most of the cars on the road ran on fossil fuels. Even though he's moved over to green energy, he still loves cars. Not in a sporty way, she thinks. It's the feel of the drive. The notion that a foot on a pedal activates a series of electrical signals that keep the car in motion and control its speed. Nav likes Roscoe because she feels the same. There's a beauty to every part of it, even the window wipers. There's a sharp turn-off and they're at the Franklin Business Park. The owner, Mr Franklin's already waiting, his eyes fixed on his app tracking their van. Franklin is clearly older than Roscoe. Nav can see it, not just in the grey of Franklin's hair, but the shortness of his sleeves and the tightness of his shirt. He's clearly going to retire soon. No need to buy a new work shirt when you can wear the old one for one last year. Nav wonders when she'll retire. She can't imagine ever wanting to give this up. You can jump out and do the introductions, says Roscoe. I'll park up. Nav nods and gets out. Franklin looks her up and down and returns to his screen. Mr Franklin? This time he manages to put the screen to sleep, gives her a polite nod. That's me. You're early. Traffic was good, says Nav. I'm Nav, your integration engineer. You mean repairman, asks Franklin. He's had a lifetime of repairmen. Electricians, plumbers... The whole park in need of some sort of repair work every day for the 14 years he's owned the land and rented it out. The publisher needs someone to look at the printer. The boiler in Unit 9 needs draining, there's no pressure. Now the trouble comes in these silver boxes on every unit. I suppose, says Nav, Roscoe, he's my supervisor, will be out in a minute. Can I ask what happened, in your own words? Like I said on the phone, said Franklin... Four units all around the park, your green boxes all smashed up. Totally stopped working, which means I've got buildings with people in not able to do business. No power at all. No backup? asks Nav, knowing what the response will be. We've got the old generator, says Franklin. I thought it'd start up, but it hasn't. Old is too old. He looks pointedly at her. Your people won't look at it. I can give it a going over, says Nav, but I'm not qualified to do any repair work. Neither's Roscoe. We're contracted for the hydrogen splitters and the green boxes, that's it. Green boxes, mutters Franklin, rolling his eyes without shame, like he'd rehearsed it. All well and good until they blow themselves up, then where's the real power? We used to process it, mine it, made an economy and a power supply run on it. They didn't just blow up. Oh, did they? says Roscoe, joining them. You said on the phone they'd been damaged. Kids, says Franklin, already frowning at the bruise by Roscoe's eye. They muck around, ride their bikes around the buildings. Last year they started a fire in the garden area, but this is the first time they've broken anything. In truth, Franklin hasn't seen the kids in about three weeks. He told them to go away and threatened to call the police when they didn't, and that seems to have done the job. But then... Who else would be smashing the green boxes if not them? Do you know it was the kids? asks Nav. Leave it, says Roscoe. Who else could it be? says Franklin. He starts walking them towards one of the buildings and maybe away from the conversation. 
Last week, we got a call out to another one of these damaged boxes, says Nav, outside a school, powering the gym. When we got there, we decided, Nav, mate, leave it, says Roscoe, interrupting her. Roscoe knows when Nav's about to say something that'll land them both in trouble. He knows this because they're too similar, and because the last time he went rushing in to argue with a cynic, well, black eye. It shouldn't be dangerous work, but there are times when people are just ignorant. He's watched that stain spread since he was a teenager, deferring a university placement during the coronavirus pandemic. Safety must be maintained. No, says Nav. She pointedly marches a little ahead of Franklin. We decided, after taking a look at the box, to go to the next one on the route. They're sequenced for routine repairs to follow a map. The next one, up the road at a garage, was being smashed by some idiots with a cricket bat. Kids from the school says Franklin. Well, no, says Nav. Adults. Actual adults. We told them to stop. Roscoe. That's the bruise, Mr Franklin, says Roscoe, pointing to the smear of burst vessels by his eye. That's how I got it. So what? These people were going from box to box, smashing them, says Franklin. Because of that stupid thing with the tracking system, says Nav. To be fair, says Franklin, I've done a lot of research into that. Had to when these bloody green boxes were forced onto my business. They reached the first damaged green box. In spite of its name, the box itself is silver, sleek with a slit across its midsection. Or it would be, had it not had its outer case and crowbarred open. Its innards no longer glowed. The energy shut off immediately when damage was sustained. Although shorted circuits had left ugly scorch marks around the inside of the machinery, "'What did your research tell you, Mr Franklin?' asks Nav. "'I hope nothing to do with some deep-level organisation tracking your every movement.' Franklin puffs air out of his cheeks. "'He's either feeling caught out or he's just exasperated.' "'Well, there has to be something to it, right? "'Why have all the boxes networking to each other?' "'Because we use them like a circuit to measure one another,' says Nav, ignoring Roscoe's look. They talk to each other, making it easier for us to talk to them and determine whether or not they're working to an optimal level. I read that information is getting relayed, though, says Franklin. There was this policy with the last government, what, 15 years ago? Reduce carbon emissions. Fine, I can get behind that. I don't have to believe everything I read about it, but the planet's getting hotter. Not much need to fly to Spain anymore. But then they bring in this mandatory thing, barring a few exceptions, the green boxes. Hydrogen-based power for homes and businesses of every size. He pauses, willing a response from Nav. But that's good, isn't it? Says Nav. They're diverting the economic saving they're making to research climate change reversal. It's slow, but ecosystems are being rebuilt. A big part of that is the application of these. She taps the box. The outer casing falls to the ground with a soft thud. Doesn't look so elegant all battered like this. But the power of this thing has changed the whole world. Franklin shrugs. Maybe to engineers like you. The birds still sing the same to me. The kettle doesn't sound any different when it boils. The internet speed is still rubbish. I'm just going to start the report, says Roscoe, stepping between them with his tablet. He doesn't need to write anything on it. As soon as it catches sight of the box shattered innards, it immediately starts taking photographs generating 3D models to ascertain the most efficient solutions to the breakages. Franklin peers over Roscoe's shoulder. Amazing what computers can do now, 
That's engineering, says Nav. It's amazing what engineering can do now. That's all automated, though, says Franklin. Your boss's little widget on his tablet does its magic and then you do the bit with the spanners. Do you know who wrote the code for the widget so it would understand all the physical tampering required, though? Roscoe doesn't look up from his tablet, but he does grin. Nobody should be as old school as Franklin seems to be, so this is a good opportunity to wipe the smug look off his face. Probably the Steve Jobs type who designed the tablet, says Franklin. Nav holds two thumbs up to herself. This person right here, integration engineer, remember? I keep everything elegant like the hydrogen splitting process itself. So, you know how to repair the green boxes? Asks Franklin. And you coded the software? Roscoe opens his bag of instruments kneeling by the box. Going from physical to digital and back again is pretty normal in this profession, he says, looking up at Franklin. I reckon it's what's giving people the willies. They know that on some level the software and the hardware are interlinked, and they're scared. That fear's making them violent. Roscoe's being kind, says Nav. He's like that, kind. The fact is, people should get over their fear. These people attack Roscoe out of ignorance, right? They kept yelling that they knew the truth, but they don't have any data to support that. Just someone else's opinion that was yelled at them. I read that there were all sorts of studies, says Franklin, saying that all the info from the boxes gets relayed to a private data farm. Kept private by our company for customer data security, says Nav. That's where it is. Making private information more secure, not less. Mr Franklin's entitled to his opinion, says Roscoe. Soundlessly, he is soldering together damaged components. Exactly, says Franklin. That's free speech, isn't it? You believe that the boxes are here to sell information about your power usage on? Really, says Nav. Not exactly, says Franklin. Just that there's more to it than you or I know. I certainly wouldn't have voluntarily had these installs. Take it from an insider, someone who's in on the secret world of green hydrogen energy, says Nav. There's no conspiracy. It's like Roscoe repairing the box here. Which you should be observing, mumbles Roscoe. She ignores him. He took the data from the damage first. He then fitted it to the correct method in order to repair it. He's using the data to influence the knowledge. He's not letting a preconceived idea filter how he sees the data. She holds up her wrist and folds back the sleeve of her shirt, revealing a thin silver watch. See this? Smart watch, says Franklin. Watched a lot of videos on those too. But, says Nav, I want the data from this. It's monitoring my heart rate, my sleep cycles, how much exercise I get a day. I combine this with the data I journal about my life, how it balances with work every day, in order to tell me the truth about my life. When I have the truth... I can influence how I react. But not before. Think of it like this. Data is truth. Truth is data. It's that elegant. An hour later, they're about to leave. The boxes should be back online by the end of the afternoon. You don't need to give every cynical customer the philosophy lesson. Roscoe slams his door a little hard when he gets back in the van. Nav is cycling through playlists on a smartwatch. If you don't break it down for people, they'll join in with the mobs breaking these boxes. It's common courtesy. The planet's half dead. If Franklin picks up on even 20% of what I argued, 
He might not go on believing that it's all some conspiracy to find out where he goes on holiday. Critical thinking should know its place in a reasonable debate with another person, finishes Roscoe. Half-dead planet, says Nav. Let's leave it at that, yeah? They exit the business park and navigate the difficult turn-off in silence. When they get on the motorway, Roscoe speaks. You're right about the data, though. The figures close the loop, says Nav. They decide the sensible course of action. It's where we come in, knowing that and acting upon that knowledge. Roscoe laughs. Who's we? The integration engineers? No, says Nav. People. Humans. The van makes a courtesy whirring noise, generated by electricity to warn pedestrians. They manoeuvre out of the park to close more loops. That was Data is Truth and Truth Data by George Sandford Smith. It's time for me to now close the loop and go back to my interview with Manjot, where I explore probably the most important aspect of engineering, the humanity. Inventive. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing because, you know, people rather tritely talk about follow your dreams, but you certainly have followed what you think is important for you as a human to be happy and to be fulfilled. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, I've spent periods of my life where you feel sad, you feel weighted, and I journal quite a lot. And I would journal religiously every single day, even when I was feeling down. And I've been typing up all my old journals and just revisiting old entries. And even when I was sad, I would always know that there's something which needs to change rather than I just need to work on accepting this. I think if there's a problem that needs to be solved, a loop that needs to be closed for me to feel like I'm honouring myself, I will do it. That's just how I'm wired. I mean, it's, it's really moving to hear you talk about this so honestly, particularly as we think of the cliche of, of males who aren't very communicative and actually engineers probably even more so. Thank you. It's something I try to honour. Growing up in my house, emotions and feelings, they were not a thing, regardless really of gender. And um, I saw the, the damage that it could create, the negative repercussions which could be caused. So I try to lead by example, even at work, if there's something emotional which needs to be discussed you know if someone's feeling uncomfortable or feeling hurt by something we may be tempted to uh, brush it under the rug because it's not part of business as usual but humans make the business humans have emotions therefore we need to deal with them and confront them you know because sometimes they can be scary and you come from a Sikh Indian heritage how has that influenced who you are as an engineer I mean I'm not going to say it's always been an easy ride I used to uh, I used to struggle with the concept of religion uh, when I was younger, and I remember having quite big conversations with my mum and dad, kind of putting up a fight, saying, "Look, I'm a man of science, I believe in logic," but you know, after my my father passed away, I saw how much my family's faith helped them to solve a problem, which is we're feeling grief. I, I have values that I try and live by, and one of those values is courage. You know, so if something as a situation presents to me and I know in myself I need courage to get through it and make that choice, then I'm more inclined to do so. And, you know, moving away from my mother and my sister um, down to London from Wolverhampton where I grew up, getting divorced. And, you know, there's been several other, you know, choices like these which have, uh, yeah, definitely not been the easiest to make, but just being more open to risk and being able to honour what I think is my own truth. That has definitely been a driver in my life to try and help me fly, as I used to put it. 
Well, thank you ever so much for your honesty. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, I heard you, you were you were interested in becoming a musician, uh, but your dad wanted you to get a, a what might be called a proper job, if I could put it that way. I guess it, you you've done what he he uh, kind of advised you to do in the end. You got a what many people would see as a proper job. Yeah, you're right. My, my did my dad did used to say, you know, I want you to get a proper job. And I remember when I was younger, I didn't really understand the essence of that message and. He used to kind of rile me up and I would think, why is my dad against me? Why doesn't he want me to just kind of pursue what I want in life? But I get the essence of the message now. You know, he just was trying to make sure that I'd be able to look after myself, as we've put it in this conversation. Being a musician for me was more about expressing creativity. And I've always loved doing so. And even right now, when I'm creating a design and then I'm, when I'm implementing it in the lab, that for me is still a huge form of creative expression. So although it may look like on the surface, I did just purely follow my dad's advice as it, as it was, which is to get a proper job in, in Speechbox there. The drive and the pursuit in me for wanting to have creative expression, I didn't let go of that. You know, uh, when I'm writing software, I'm writing it from the ground up. And that for me is assembling the building blocks, just like you would when you're creating music and you're assembling the individual tracks, you know, the drums, the piano, the strings. That for me is how I feel when I'm compiling software and putting that together or when I'm putting together different parts of a hardware system. Even when I'm soldering, that's all still creative expression. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I probably should uh, sort of postmark this conversation by saying I think being a musician is a proper job as well because otherwise I'm going to get huge complaints from my friends as well <laughs> working in acoustics. I know a lot of musicians who aren't going to be very happy. Anyway, um, so if you had to highlight one key skill for an engineer, what would that be? I don't know if I would call it a skill, but I would say curiosity. Never, ever let your curiosity die. I mean, even just today, I was in a meeting with the guys, you know, in the team and just driven by the fact that I just wanted to understand why, why, why are we doing X the way that we're doing it? Does it add value? You know, are we getting what we need out of this rather than just accepting there's a process in place and we'll accept the process. Um, so having curiosity and not letting that curiosity die in the face of if it's difficult or if the answer itself is hard to come by or the answer makes you uncomfortable. So. Yeah, curiosity is definitely my answer there. And if you, if you had a chance to wave a magic wand and change one thing about engineering, what what would you change? It's 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 a difficult one, but I'm tempted to say in terms of creative expression, sometimes we create a process in engineering and we say this is the process, we will run the process as is and the process is the process. We respect it and we we uphold it. But sometimes that process can be done better. That process can be improved. The system that we're using, the methodology, the principles underlying all of that, sometimes they, they do need to be challenged. And I think, yeah, I think creative expression, allow the creative expression to be able to be channeled into what ultimately is just ones and zeros or logical yeses and nos. Allow creative expression to be more channeled into, into, into systems that are used. I think that would be the answer. And if you had a superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, if I had a superpower. Hmm. I've always wanted to be able to read faster. I know it's not a cool superpower, if I'm honest, but I've seen people that can scan their eyes across the pages of a book and just read it in seconds. And I think that's a superpower. That That's a, a real life superpower. I would love to be able to do something like that. And if, you know, looking to the future, um, you're obviously very happy at H2Go, but if you if you could work on other aspects of engineering in the future, any, any, any desires there? Hmm. I'm very, very, very fulfilled in my engineering uh, 
opportunity here at HTGO, and, and that, that's the honest truth. I love coming to work. I dream about the work that I do here at H2Go. I come in on the weekends. I was sending emails about some of my thoughts at one o'clock the other day in the morning. Like, I love my work here at H2Go. It is my happiness, genuinely. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Um, yes, careful of that weekend working, though. It can get knackering from experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I kind of swing pole to pole. I'll either go maximum power. I'll just take a break and do absolutely nothing for a short amount of time, recharge, and then go maximum power again. I think I've got it figured out. It may not be a sustainable system, but I think I've got the system figured out. Manjo, that was a really nice interview and really appreciated. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. A big thank you to both Enos Abu Hamid and Manjot Chana. It's a privilege to chat to engineers who are open to go beyond their work to what motivates them and drives their love of engineering. A big thanks also to George Sandifer Smith for his thought-provoking story. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the fact and the fiction and the way we mix it in Inventive. Go to www.inventivepodcast.com where we have a survey form for our listeners to give feedback on the interviews and stories. And if you enjoy Inventive, please subscribe and spread the word via the usual socials. Next time on Inventive. One of the things that I find fascinating, especially in the field of computer science, is that we are not attached or limited by any field of science. So I can work on agriculture, on cancer diagnosis, and uh, I work with AI and smart analytics. I work with ethics and AI, and you can be inventive at all times. I believe that as engineers, we are doctors for the world. I mean, we've all watched millions of pounds and endless years go down the drain as endless committees and hearings and pilot studies achieve nothing. We've got rid of all that. You've got rid of democracy. That was award-winning engineer Larissa Suzuki and a short snippet of a story by Tim Morn. Hear the full interview next time on Inventive along with Tim's full story, which is really good. It made me laugh out loud. We've got school curriculum and career materials accompanying all our podcasts. You'll find the links at www.inventivepodcast.com or you can go to the website of NU STEM at Northumbria University who are producing the educational content. Thanks to Anna Scott-Brown and Adam Fowler who were the producers. Inventive's music was composed and performed by Brendan Williams. Animations were by Annabeth Robinson. Images were by Ben Warburton. Multi-platform and social media content was directed by Jill Davis. The story this time was read by Aaron Neal. The Inventive project is from the University of Salford. It is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and the podcast is an overtone production. So it's goodbye from me, acoustical engineer, Professor Trevor Cox. Thank you.